Hello, I'm James Cornby and welcome to Capital Talk, the private wealth podcast brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Capital Talk, where the topic is protectors and specifically why protectors are dangerous. And here to discuss this fascinating topic is Elspeth Talbot Rice Casey, no less, from XXIV Buildings or 24-Old Buildings, as it's known. Elspeth, welcome. Thank you. And we've got Sparsh Garg from 24-Old Buildings as well, also a specialist, I understand, in trust law. Yes, thank you. All right, welcome both. So, um, Elspeth, if I can just turn to you as a newly minted KC, does it mean you get new robes and wigs? No, sadly, it's all just the same old, same old. It's just a letter change, which okay. takes a bit of getting used to, I have to say. Okay, well, I'll try and make sure that I don't call you a QC anymore. Um, would you mind, for the benefit of my audience, just to explain very briefly what the hell a protector is? Well, it's a very good question, James, because I'm not sure that anybody knows. Uh, they were introduced into trustees. They're called protectors. They usually have powers of consent to trustees' decisions. But other than that... It's all a bit of a mystery. Why would someone have a protector? Usually because um, it's a close friend and they want uh, that connection with the trust, which otherwise uh, they have no connection with because the trust is going to be abroad. The trustees are abroad. They don't know the trustees and they feel uh, concerned about giving their wealth away in that manner. So it's a comfort blanket for settlers. Yeah. Now, the problem I have with... Uh, protectors, sparshes that um, I don't know what the hell they are. Are they fish or are they fowl? So what's your view on protectors and why they are dangerous? Well, they're dangerous because, well, you just said it, is we don't know what, what the hell they are. There is no defined role for, for protectors, either either in the law or, or, in, or, in, or even in trustees. I mean, trustees can give very broad, sort of broad powers to a protector on, on the one hand, or or a protector could have very uh, limited powers in another trust deed. Or no um, powers at all. I mean, uh, well, I mean, we, we, we talked earlier, didn't we, in the conference? By the way, listeners, we're, we're in a little sidebar from the Step Malta conference. Um, we talked earlier about it's unusual to see in a trust deed any provisions relating to a protector other than just stating what their powers are. Yes. So there's a huge gap between what they're expected to do and what's legislated for? Well, well, well yes. I mean, it, it, the legislation, I mean, it depends on which jurisdiction, but very few jurisdictions, say, have any legislative framework with, re, with respect to protectors. I think there's some limits to that. There's some exceptions to that. I think St. Kitts and Nevis, as we discussed earlier, yeah. has some very limited, has set out some very limited duties for a protector, which are very trite really one would say for a whole drop fiduciary power for example powers of loyalty a duty of loyalty uh, duties of care but aside from that uh, I'm not aware of any other jurisdiction and it makes it what it what it, what it does for me is it makes it just very uncertain yep. for lawyers to be able to advise on on a protector's role okay so let, let's just pause there for a minute and let's also uh, assume that our trust isn't in Turks and Caicos or St Kitts and Nevis and we're in a jurisdiction that doesn't legislate for them. Um, the problem I have with protectors is, let's look at it from the settlers' perspective. The settlers wanted this comfort blanket. And in my experience, the protector 
is not someone who's experienced in trust at all. So what's my recourse against my protector if he makes a stupid decision, which leads to a loss to the trust fund? Elspeth? Well, it goes back to your question, is this protector, this particular one, a fish or a fowl? Because the first question that's never usually answered by the trust deed is, is he a fiduciary or not? Now, in the example you've just posited, if the protector is not a fiduciary, you can't do anything about it. He can make whatever decision he likes. All right, so that, that's, a big, that's a big deal, right? So yeah. my protector in this fictional case has made the most god-awful decision, which has led to a large loss to the trust fund. And let's also say the trustee doesn't have any provisions about protector's duties. It just says you've got the following powers, right? Mm-hmm. What next? Well, um, is, he, is he fiduciary or not? Well, That's the first question. Well, Sparsh, I'm going to you now. Well, uh, my, if I'm the protector and I'm wanting to protect myself from my protectorship role, I'm going to say, I'm not a fiduciary. Yes. You just appointed me. I did it as a favour. I'm not a professional. Yes. So... It's not my fault if it goes wrong. Yes, well, well and, and that's a real problem for, for, for both a set law, for example, because he thinks he's getting, or he or she yeah. thinks they're getting a comfort blanket, but actually they're just creating another, another problem for themselves because their friend could very soon run away, effectively, because they, they, you can't hold them to account, unlike a trustee, where it's, it's right. well established. You can hold that person to but account. But what, what's going to what's turn our protector, either of you, into a fiduciary. What makes a protector role a fiduciary role so in the, the absence of any wording in the trust deed? The, the court will generally approach that question on the basis that the, the default setting is that a protector is fiduciary. Ah, that's so not good for our naughty that's protector. That's not good for your naughty protector. Not What's worse for your naughty protector is very rarely do the trust deeds have in them Rights of indemnity for the protector, loads for the trustee. Yeah. Um, exoneration clauses for the protector, loads for the trustee. Ne- you never see those, or rarely. It's rarely. And what about more specific clauses like anti-Bartlett clauses, which yeah. say that the trustee doesn't have to get involved in the management of a company? I've never seen one of those relating to a protector. Right. Although you can, I should say, one of the uh, clauses I've seen in a trust instrument is a charging clause. Yes. For the I wanted to come on to that. Just pause that thought yeah. for a moment. If there is an exculpation clause, a limitation of liability, if you like, mm-hmm. for a protector and a trustee, does that point to that protector being a fiduciary? Yes, I would say it does. Yeah? I'm not sure it, it would. What well, liability why? would the protector have if it was a personal... If, he, if his role was a personal one, not a fiduciary one. Well, let's park that for a second. I want to go back to this charging point, which is very interesting. In our fictional trust, the protector was a friend of the settlor who knows nothing about trusts, right? What if the protector's a professional? Someone like a lawyer who's doing a bit of work on the side. Oh, yeah, I'll be protector of your trust fund. I'll, pay, I'll charge you £2,000 a year mm-hmm. just to sit there. Then I make a horrible mistake. Um, am I accountable? If you're a fiduciary, yes. And if you're being paid, you probably are. Sparsh, do yes, you agree? I, well, I'd say as a fiduciary, yes. And I think the other way, which I think we're just hinting to, is under a contract. Because usually there would be a, a, some sort of contract between the protector and, and probably the trustee. You're, you're quite right. Now, I want to just move on to another point, because I think that's all very interesting. Let's say I'm a protector 
and I want to avoid being sued. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm going to take my job seriously. To what extent do I have to look at or relook at the decision making process of the trustees? Because they've come to me with a proposition. We've looked at it. We've considered that we want to pay this amount of money to this beneficiary. Do I need to agree with the trustees, firstly? And secondly, do I need to look at everything that the trustees have looked at and decided that their decision making was reasonable? So that's an open question on the authorities at the moment. Uh, We're waiting for a Court of Appeal decision from Bermuda, um, which uh, we hope might clarify that very question. But there have been inconsistent decisions from England, Jersey and Bermuda at the moment on that topic. England has said, no, you you, the protector, make uh, the same decision as the trustee makes. You're not just looking at whether the trustee's done their decision-making process properly. The court at first instance in Bermuda has said no, you, the protector, are looking at whether the trustee has done his job properly and you're not making your own decision. So if you disagree with the trustee, that's neither here nor there. And uh, then we've got Jersey, who's come up with a bit of a hybrid, okay. um, which is quite difficult, in my view, to, to work out what the protector's meant to be doing. OK, so it's up in the air. Yep. Which is not very helpful. And it goes back to the proposition of this podcast is protectors are dangerous because it looks like they're either a danger to themselves or they're a danger to others. And the more you try and regulate them, and this as a tax lawyer, which I can't help being, the more you regulate the protector in the trustee, the more that protector looks like a trustee. And if your protector's resident in a high tax jurisdiction like the UK, suddenly you've got a co-trustee in the UK. So it looks like a horror story to me. But that's the real difficulty with these because yes. the SEP law really wants that person to yes. be the trustee but doesn't want to pay the tax and that's why this idea probably came about in the first place. Right, so let's let's get to the crux of it because I've got to wind up in a minute. Okay. It's up in the air, it's mm-hmm. not very satisfactory but people still want protectors. So I want from each of you a tip as to what should we do to protect our set laws or to make it better is that have you got a top tip for just stopping some of these problems from arising so i would say for two things one explain to the set law that the protector's role is very limited yeah because otherwise there might be very nasty tax consequences uh, and the second is is to set out um in the trustee that the protector's role is that of a conduit between the family and the trustees so it's an information flow okay uh, Sparsh, what's your view? Well, I think I would just I would just build on that by saying I think the trustee, in my view, I know there are tax consequences potentially, but in my view, from a legal perspective, from a, from a litigation perspective, yeah. which I can't help myself, that it has to the trustee. You guys can very, never help yourself. Never help you? You're always wanting to sue everyone all but the it time. It has to set out very very <laughs> clearly. Yeah what the role of the protector actually is, and you don't see that, and that's where the problems oh, arise. Now. I just want to finish on that point because before we go, because this is really crucial. If you start setting out in more detail what the protector is going to do, but we don't want it to go as far as being a trustee, what would you recommend is in the trustee? I think a clause that says that when the trustee makes a decision, your job is to make sure that trustee has gone through a proper decision-making process, taken into account all relevant and ignored all irrelevant matters. That is what your job is, which means you are not a trustee. You're not taking the decision. The decision uh, that's being made is the trustee's decision. You are there as a a policeman. And that should be stated in the trustee. I think so. 
but it's often not what the settlers and, want. And, and one, one other thing, let's say that, let's say our trustee has got that wording in it, mm-hmm. which is good. Sparsh, do we then have an exculpation clause for that protector? Well, I think I think protectors would probably only agree. I'd imagine a rational person would only agree to be a protector if there was that exculpation clause in it. Because on the one hand, you're saying you've got this very, very limited yeah. role. But if you don't have an exculpation clause, on the other hand, you might be saying, well... Oh, but it doesn't blow a hole in our argument, I'm not a fiduciary if I have an exculpation clause. He's, an, he's a fiduciary. Okay. He's still a fiduciary, he's a, yeah. but he's not a trustee. And he's protected in case of being sued. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Well, I think we've got... We've we got some light on this shady <laughs> subject. Um, and uh, I want to thank uh, both of you very much for coming on the podcast. Elspeth, thank you very much. Pleasure. And Sparsh, thank you very much too. And I hope you enjoyed the exchange and uh, tune in next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Capital Talk, brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. I'm James Cornby and I look forward to seeing you next time.